Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. Denial is, no, it's not happening. It's it's not going to happen to me. It's and, and underneath that is all about avoidance and confusions and being shocked and being fearful. You're saying, no, 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 that can't be right. That can't be happening. I kept asking you to get off the beat and you kept telling me. <laughs> off, and I man. said, no, I'm in stage one of the model. <laughs> This is a legitimate stage, leave me alone. But scarcity also can pull us together. So in in times of shortage and times of crisis, there's also this wonderful community building that happens. To all our listeners, the first thing that Ryan and I want to say is that we hope you're safe. We hope your families are safe and you're all well during these really unprecedented times. So today we wanted to talk a bit about what's happening in terms of people's behavior now. We can widen this subject out, not just to talk about customer experience. One of the beliefs that we have is that your customers are people. And therefore, you know, all of this stuff that we talk about on this podcast is all about behavior. And it's interesting to just watch human behavior at the moment, some of which is stunning, some of which is jaw-droppingly incredibly bad. (laughs) (laughs) But some of it is good, too. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. That's what I mean by stunning. I mean, I think some of the altruism and stuff like that is, is really, really great. Yeah, in times of crisis, sometimes you can see maybe amplifications of normal behaviors. And so from our perspective as people who are interested in human psychology and behavior, times like this are, are, in addition to everything else they are, they're also opportunities to kind of learn more about people. So when we first I, when we first started to talk about having doing this session, the first thing I thought about was, oh, this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. So my first piece of learning was, Ryan, was when I reached out to you and said, we should do a podcast talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And what was the feedback you gave me? Maslow's not really highly thought of in the research psychology community. He's arguably one of the most influential psychologists who ever lived, but he and also Freud are not real favorites of empirical psychologists. Basically, what we're saying is, let me just put it in my usual layman's terms, there isn't the numbers to support the model, but everybody seems to agree that there's something there. Is that right? Yeah, that's actually, that's not a bad way of of phrasing it. Let's give people, in case anybody's doesn't remember or isn't familiar. Maslow was this uh, psychologist and he developed what he called a hierarchy of needs. It's usually portrayed as a, a, a pyramid or a triangle. And he said that we have these, these needs that have to be met at a, a foundational basic level before we can move up 
the pyramid to higher order needs. So at the bottom, he has physiological needs, food, shelter, sleep. And then above that are, are safety needs. I mean, you need to feel secure. You need to have employment. Above that is love and belonging, relationships with others. Above that is esteem, self-esteem, respect. And then at the top is self-actualization, this desire to be the most that we can be. And so Maslow put these together and said that there's an order to them and that we need to fulfill the physiological and safety needs before we can focus on esteem and self-actualization. Let's talk about the problem first, and then we'll talk about what's good about what Maslow did. So the, the problem is, as people have investigated this over the decades since Maslow, there's just not a lot of support empirically for this hierarchy. As you said, the numbers aren't there. When, when people have investigated it empirically, when they've actually tested it, it turns out that Sometimes people will place self-esteem needs above safety needs or love and belonging needs above physiological needs, right? So the ordering is problematic. There's just, there's not support for it. Okay. And the reason I jumped to it, I'm sure a load of other people have as well. The reason I jumped to it is going, yeah, there are queues down the grocery store and, and things like that because it's actually going back to some basics, which is how am I going to feed myself? In Western society and the developed world has never really been an issue. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's a reason that even though there's not a lot of empirical support for it, Maslow's still around. And he still talked about all the time, this hierarchy appears everywhere. I mean, this, this hierarchy will show up in first year psychology textbooks, even though there's not a lot of scientific support for it, even though it's not a good theory, it's still around. And part of it is because it's just, it's got this real intuitive appeal. Like it feels like it should be right. And so let me say something nice about Maslow. I teach in a business school. I teach my students about theories, but I also teach my students lots of frameworks. So if you went to business school, you, you may be familiar with like Porter's five forces or the four P's in marketing or the five C's. We have all these frameworks that we, frameworks are not theories. You can't derive hypotheses from them and test them. So nobody can disprove Porter's five forces because it doesn't make falsifiable predictions. It, it can't be tested in that way, but it's still taught because it's really useful and then that's the way I see Maslow. I think I think that this hierarchy of needs, even though it's not great as a hierarchy, is a really useful framework in terms of categorizing people's needs and thinking about the different needs that people have. They're not always going to be in this strict order where one is always more important than the others, but they're all important. And if any of them are threatened, then people are going to react to that. So I still think it's useful. I don't think we should burn all of the Maslow triangles that we find, but we should understand them in context. So is there a psychological equivalent of that then that has been tested that would go to sort of explain some of the things that are happening today? There are a couple of hierarchies that have been proposed and have a little bit more empirical support. I'll reference just one. There's a book called The Rational Animal by uh, Kenrick and Grishkevejis. Vlad is a friend of mine. He's worked with me for many weeks on how to pronounce his name. Uh, I still don't do it well. Uh, he's, he's the nicest guy in the whole world. And it's a really, really interesting book, The Rational Animal. And it's about evolutionary psychology and a lot of the, the evolutionary drives or motives that we have. And so they developed their alternative to Maslow that's actually rooted a little bit more in experimentation. And there's definitely some parallels there, but they, they say at the, the bottom, 
of their pyramid is self-protection, and then above that is disease avoidance, and then above that is affiliation, and then status, mate acquisition, mate retention, and kin care, caring for others. So again, there are other frameworks that kind of put these together. My most useful advice to people is just to recognize that there are lots of these categories of needs, and they can all be important in different contexts. Sure. But if we were to take a step back and just go, let's look at sort of human behavior as we're in this pandemic, then what are we seeing? Well, we're starting to see basic human needs not being met, i.e. you mentioned there disease avoidance. Well, that's why I guess everyone's socially isolating at the moment. And also you're seeing obviously the run on things like toilet rolls and everything else that people seems to have been having runs on at the moment. And that's because of us going back to this basic bit of we just need the basics and suddenly it's pretty scary when someone says, actually, there may not be any food out there. It's a very good point. And uh, people shouldn't take away from this criticism of Maslow that physiological needs aren't important, that suddenly this doesn't matter. Clearly, I mean, obviously, we need these things to live. And people we can see are reacting very strongly to being worried about being able to to meet those needs. So yes, absolutely true. These physiological needs are, are very, very powerful. Maslow did us a service by categorizing them and emphasizing how important they are. So it made me then think about what are other things that we're seeing and why is that from a psychological perspective? Yeah. And we've talked long and often on the podcast about people's need for certainty. And even, I was thinking, loss aversion, people's need to keep what they've got. We're living in uncertain times. We don't even know what's going to happen next week. I was chatting to uh, a friend who said something about next week. I thought, bloody hell, I can't even think about (laughs) next week, (laughs) let alone anything else, you know. Are we sure that the week as a time structure will still exist at that point? Like, I think we may have just broken down weeks into days at that point. There will be no discussion of weeks. Yeah, well, the strange thing is, is that I'm in England at the moment, so we're literally all locked down. And like everybody else, I'm reverting to doing socialising on, we use a video program, web program called Zoom, uh, which you've been on, which is great. Anyway, long and short of it was, I was talking to some of my male friends, and on a Friday night every month, we always go out for a for a drink and a curry when I'm in England. And I decided that we could actually have a virtual gathering. But I decided to do it on a Thursday night. And you should have seen the backlash that I got. They <laughs> <laughs> said, so why are we moving from a Friday? And I said, well, I don't even know what day of the bloody week it is. <laughs> Does it really matter? <laughs> you know, are you suddenly busy? Have you got, have you got to do something on the Thursday night? And maybe that's actually a really interesting example because it just sort of highlights, doesn't it, that we just like everything to be laid out as it was. And even when you suggest something sort of quite innocuous like that, the the backlash that that then causes is is quite incredible. That is some of the advice that psychologists and therapists give to people during times of a people like this is to try to maintain your schedule to the best you can. I guess that there are a lot of mental health benefits to it. But it also speaks to this desire for certainty, desire for predictability. I'm always interested in the difference between 
process and outcome certainty, especially for businesses. A lot of times you can't guarantee the outcome of something, but you can often guarantee the process. So if this happens, then this will happen. And if this happens, then this will happen. We don't know what the ultimate outcome will be, but we can draw out a tree. I'm of the belief, I don't know that this has been empirically tested, but I'm of the belief that people can find comfort in the certainty of the process, even if the certainty of the outcome is unknown. So knowing that there's going to be a beer and a curry every Friday, even if it's virtual, that feels like more of a process certainty thing to me. Um, and you were messing with the process, Colin. So I know. Coming from left field on something like that, it's just obviously my friends can't deal with it. So, And I'm sure it's not just my friends. Let Beyond Philosophy help you discover what your customers really want, not what they say they want, by uncovering the hidden drivers of value in your customer experience to create real ROI. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. But we also seem to be seeing from a, a wider perspective, and it's interesting, and we mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, the best and the worst from people, don't we? In fact, I was reading yesterday about, so everyone's meant to be in lockdown, and this couple got in a car and drove 50 miles to go and pick up a shelf unit or something that they'd bought from somebody on eBay. They couldn't get it in the back of the car, so the wife had got in the trunk of the car. And the police... (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. And the police pulled them over. And they don't want to be seen out as a couple as well. And Because, you know, it's just madness. And you just think to yourself, some of these people just seem to be going from bad to worse but then on the other side of it you've got some really altruistic behavior that's happening and people going out of their way to to help each other haven't you yeah there's a couple of interesting approaches to this there's an old saying in economics that recessions are useful because it's like seeing a bunch of companies that are all waiting in the shallow water and then during a recession, the tide goes out and you get to see who's actually wearing bathing suits. So the idea is that there are a lot of shaky companies out there and then during, during a recession, the truth is revealed. I think that there may be some of that going on during these troubled times. Like there are always people who will hang on to the roof of a car so that they can transport some shelf across town. But When the roads are full of people, sometimes those people get lost in the mix (laughs) during a a global virus pandemic. Now we can, all that water's gone out and we can see all the crazy that's there normally. But to your, your other point, as with anything in psychology and behavioral economics, people can have multiple reactions to things. So we had Kelly Goldsmith on, gosh, it was probably, it was probably more than a year ago now on the podcast. And she talked about scarcity. That's her area of interest. And she's a a good friend of mine and and her phone's been blowing up. All these reporters want to talk to her about scarcity now. Scarcity is one of those things that produces both of these outcomes. So scarcity produces aggression. They've done experiments where they, they show people like Black Friday ads, like scarcity ads, and then they'll swab their cheeks and there's a rise in testosterone just from looking at advertisements that have limited supplies. We get more aggressive more violent, but scarcity also can pull us together. So in in times of shortage and times of crisis, 
there's also this wonderful community building that happens. You and I were talking before we started recording, and it feels like the nation of England, the, the country of Great Britain, has gone through these crises of pulling together about every generation or so, where tough times, scarce resources cause people to form these communities and work together and help each other out. And we're seeing a lot of that too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And a couple of examples of that is they did this in Italy and Spain and they did it in England the other day, which is where they were um, at eight o'clock one night, they went out and everybody's clapping for the National Health Service. It's going on in Atlanta now as well. It's a great thing. Sorry, I cut you off in the story. In case people haven't heard, at eight o'clock, what happens? Everyone goes for a beer and a curry. <laughs> that is not what happens. <laughs> it's only on Fridays. No, so what happens is to show support for all of the health workers, everybody goes outside their front door and claps, basically. And we did it the other day. And I have to say, it's very emotional, actually. It's quite uplifting. I saw online, there was a video, and it was recorded, I believe, in the UK, where a nurse, I believe, somebody or a doctor, and she was going to her night shift at the hospital. And as she walked out to her car, all of her neighbors just lined the streets on both sides and just applauded her and expressed appreciation. And she just broke down crying. And I almost broke down crying watching it. I mean, it, it is, it's these wonderful, I read a lot of apocalyptic science fiction. Is this just to cheer you up? You are just learning about me, Colin. <laughs> and yet somehow you are not surprised at all when you hear this about me. I sit down with my axe collection and my chainsaws <laughs> and I read apocalyptic science. And, and a staple. Have you ever taken a step back and thought to yourself how weird that must let sound me, to Let people. me interrupt you. No, I have not. <laughs> so, so you're listening to apocalyptic things with your axe collection. I mean, just put those two things together and, and think about what that means. I hear the judgment <laughs> in your voice, Colin, and I don't appreciate it. Oh, classic. No, but at, at like a staple of all of that work, The Handmaid's Tale, 1984, Brave New World, The Road, all of these things, one of the linchpins is how quickly society can deteriorate under stress. And for sure we see that. But it's also the case that we're kind of living through a mini apocalypse now. And people are by and large being really great. No, they are. Uh, and what surprised me was the other night I sat down to, I have to say that Lorraine, my wife and I have been having corona-free days. In other words, <laughs> we just try and don't turn on the news to forget about it, basically. Anyway, so we turned on Netflix and they've really got this this good thing now. I don't know if you've seen it, where it says on Netflix, like what are the top 10 films that are currently being watched or whatever, or I think it was USA Today or something. And believe it or not, one of the top 10 is Outbreak, which is that Dustin Hossman film that talks about this virus that's going around the world. Contagion's another one that's been really popular, which is essentially what we're living through now. Yeah. And you think, how can people want to watch that when this is all happening? But there you go. So let's talk about another model that I think would be useful for people that I think explains things. And, and I've used this model in... It's actually a grief model, and I've used this model in when you're sort of talking about life changes. And we'll put the link of this, by the way, at the end of this, just to remind people, we write down a podcast summary. And the podcast summary will have the key takeaways from the podcast. It has any of the links that we're referring to, 
but it also has the sort of the key actions from the podcast. And that is all on a document that is on our website, which is at beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. This model is, and so we'll put the link in there for this for people because it's obviously difficult to explain it over um, the medium of uh, voice, but it's Kubler-Ross grief cycle. And it starts off with denial. And I think this is where people start getting at the beginning. And you think of any sort of big life changes that you've had if you've, I know they use these in hospital systems and, and stuff like that for when they're giving people bad news about their health and stuff like that. Denial is, no, nah, it's not happening. It's it's not going to happen to me. It's and, and underneath that is all about avoidance and confusions and being shocked and being fearful. You're saying, no, 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 that can't be right. That can't be happening. The next stage is anger. Yeah. Why is this happening to me? Why does all these things always happen to me? Frustration, irritation, anxiety, all those types of things. Then after the anger goes, you get into depression, yeah? And you feel overwhelmed and you feel helpless and you feel hostile. The danger is that depression can carry on for people for a long period of time. And obviously, clearly, the depression can get worse. But typically, something happens that's the catalyst for you to go, nah, I'm not going to accept this effectively. And you start struggling with yourself. And the next stage is called bargaining, which is struggling to find meaning, reaching out to other people, articulating your story, starting to think about it more. And then finally, it gets into acceptance which is you're starting to explore the options, starting to say, okay, well, this is happening. What can we do? And I think that's a useful model in this environment because I've certainly seen a lot of denial, you know, and this is throughout the world where the governments are saying we should be socially distancing ourselves. And certainly when I was, we've just come back from Florida, but when I was in Florida, everyone's still partying on the beaches. This was spring break, basically. I kept asking you to get off the beach and you kept telling me. <laughs> and I man. said, no, I'm in stage one of the model. <laughs> <laughs> this is a legitimate stage. Leave me alone. Yes. And is this on Friday night so I can go and have a beer and a curry? No, I'm not in England. It can't be. So anger, you can only imagine what some places are like now with people feeling depressed about all of this, etc., etc. The good news is, we will get through this. Better times are ahead. And we're going to get to a point where people are starting to accept it. And I think the world's at different stages. And people are at different stages. The interesting thing for me, and I was chatting about this with the team the other day, there is not going to be a new norm. Well, there will be a new normal, but it won't be the old normal. Yeah, it will be new. I really believe that people are going to come out of this feeling different in my my lifetime this is the biggest thing that's ever happened fortunately i haven't gone through a world war as my father well, did you're, you're only 21 so <laughs> chance of it a fine thing i genuinely believe that what's going to happen is that this is going to change the way that people think and work and i genuinely believe that if organizations think that 
everything is just going to go back to how it was before the pandemic, they're going to be sadly mistaken. And I genuinely believe that what organisations have got to do is they've got to start to go, okay, so given that we're now getting back to normal or the pandemic's over or is going to be over over the next few months, then we've now got to start to relook at our customers and say, we got to find out what they're like, basically. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, because they're new people in a certain sense. Yeah. Classically, the stuff that we talk about, what drives value is going to be different. And even just think about the channels that people use. Why do people in America go to the grocery stores so much? Whereas in the UK, deliveries of groceries is has always been a, a much greater percentage you think about the organizations that are now starting to do things much more online i think this is clearly going to push that as well which is actually good news for organizations i think yeah retail was dying anyway so what's this going to do to retail i think there's a lot of change that's coming too many people are, are starting looking at this and going the pandemic's going to be over and then tomorrow we'll just get back to normal it's not going to happen like that. It's going to come back over a period of time. There will be a new normal. The big question I have for our listeners today is, what's going to be your new normal, basically? And your customer's new normal. Your industry's new normal. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's any other observations you want to make or should we just go straight into our usual bit of, well, what does this mean for everybody? Either. I'm glad that you brought up the the Kubler-Ross model. Uh, I guess I'll make one or two comments on that and that can serve as my takeaways. Like this is a time of of grief. The Kubler-Ross model is a, is a model of grief. And I think that it's useful to think about it from those terms. I've seen a disturbing level of people stuck on that first stage of the model, the denial. There's a lot of motivated reasoning where people assume that it's it's not going to be that bad or it's not going to, as you were just saying, things will get back to normal quickly or it's not going to affect me. I think it's possible for us to never get past that. It's probably time to get past that. It's probably time to uh, start looking at how things are changing and realizing that things are going to be different. That doesn't mean we, we panic. As a scientist, I'm very big on skepticism. I think skepticism is very healthy. It's a great thing. I am struck, though, by how often the people who are the most skeptical seem to act as if they have a limited supply of skepticism. I'm going to be really skeptical of official sources and mainstream media, and now I've burned up all of my skepticism. And so now I'm very happy to accept anonymous source online who says something crazy. That's always been a little bizarre to me. If you want to be skeptical, great, but go all in. If you're going to be skeptical of official stuff, be even more skeptical of the non-official stuff. And all of that is, I think, a part of this denialism where we want things to be the way we want them to be so badly that we will deny anything that, that goes against it. So that's one bit. And then the other thing, the reason I'm glad you brought up this this grief model, I think that there are lots of different ways that we can be going through this model. Like one is just kind of our 
acceptance of reality and then our worry about this virus and what's going to it's going to do you may have a separate stage of grief processing for whatever's going on with your job and there may be a process you need to go through for that or opportunities that you've missed people have had to to miss funerals or, or long-awaited trips with family and friends and things and i i think it's appropriate to grieve for those things on a lesser scale so i encourage our listeners to allow themselves the space to to process all that the best they can yeah i agree with all that the advice i would give the recommendations i would give is it's always fascinating just to look at people's behavior and i hope that the people dialing into the podcast agree with that because I guess that's what we're all about, is understanding customer behavior, people behavior. Ryan's talked eloquently about the model, and I agree with everything you just said. I think the other major thing I would just reinforce is better times are ahead, okay? This is going to end. The issue is when it comes back to ending, it's not going to be like it was. A, it's going to take time for us to sort of end and start the new world. B, it's not going to be the same. How your customers were, what drove value for them, how they interacted with you, even their values will have changed or altered. And therefore, in the new world, you need to get yourself ahead. You need to find out what your customers are now thinking and what you can do. And we're going to be doing another podcast on customer habits, which is how to change customer habits. And this is an ideal opportunity to change customer habits. Says the guy who can't get his friends to eat on a Thursday. (laughs) That podcast is going to be for you, Colin. Yeah, good point. Well made. So I would just remind people that two things. One is you can download a copy of the podcast summary, a hard document that you can pass around to people. It just literally highlights the key takeaways and the recommended actions. Second thing, and probably most important thing, please just stay safe, be with your family, and make sure that you're okay. And as you start to get into that acceptance and go through that grief model that we've been talking about, Use the podcast as a tool to train yourself on some of the new things you've got to start thinking about and understanding your customer's behavior. So be safe out there. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.